following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Perhaps some of you boys and girls have had the experience where you did something where you disobeyed your mother or your father. And they didn't know about it. But suddenly you started having this really queer feeling. You began to feel really badly about what you had done. And so what did you do? You went on your own to your parents and confessed what you had done and asked them to forgive you. I hope that's been your experience, because what you've experienced in that case is what we call the working of your conscience. That queer feeling that brought to your attention that something was wrong, well, that was your conscience. And as adults, we've all experienced this. Perhaps we haven't always realized it, but you've awakened in the morning and you're just a little depressed, you know, a little off. And you're trying to think, now, did I have a bad dream or did I not sleep well or is it something... I ate last night. And although that off feeling can sometimes be physically induced, I imagine nine times out of ten, at least in my experience, it is your conscience. Your conscience is convicting you. And if you'll simply stop and think about the day or the evening before, something you said, something you did um, that was sinful, particularly against someone else, will come to mind. You can see that is the role of conscience. Conscience is an amazing thing. God placed conscience uh, in us as he created us in Adam and Eve. It is uh, often spoken of as a thing. It's a part of our soul. It's a part of our rational being that is connected to uh, the law of God that is written on our hearts. And it bears testimony with God either against us are for us. So a, a bad conscience, an unclean conscience, an evil conscience will bring you under conviction of sin. It will begin to testify to you with respect to some action, oftentimes somewhat minor, sometimes very serious. But there's also the working of a good conscience uh, by which God through your conscience testifies to you of the integrity of your ways and of what you've done and and of the assurance and boldness that you have in Christ Jesus. Now, in this text before us this morning, Job 13, 1 through 19, uh, the Holy Spirit is showing us the working of a good conscience in the life of a believer. And the conscience then is a very important ally, perhaps next to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the most important ally you can have in your Christian pilgrimage. It reminds you where we are. We're kind of in the middle of Job's uh, response to Zophar. We have Zophar, the last of the three friends. His speech is in chapter 12. He uh, has slandered Job and rebuked him for simply trying to overcome them with a multitude of bully words. And then he actually has set before us a very wonderful description of God's infinity, God's sovereignty, and then also a very faithful call to repentance. 
course, the problem is the call to repentance was not suited for Job in, in his particular situation. So in chapter 12, Job begins to respond to Zophar and really to all three of them as he speaks here and rebukes uh, uh, Zophar for his words. And then he goes on to set forth a doctrine of God that is far superior to kind of the glib and, and facile things that Zophar and the others were saying about God. Whereas we saw last week, there's this most wonderful description of uh, the wise, powerful sovereignty of God over all things. Yes, all things in creation. Remarkably, over all sinners and uh, all their actions against the deceivers and the deceived. And then in all the affairs of men, individuals, and kingdoms. Well, Job finishes his discussion of God. He turns now uh, basically and rebukes his friends and begins to address God here in chapter 13. And he can do so with a confidence and boldness because he recognizes that the good conscience fortifies us against slander, enables us boldly to come into the presence of God. I hope you know these things. A good conscience fortifies us against slander and enables us boldly to come into the presence of God. And we're going to look at those two things. In verses 1 through 13, we see that a good conscience fortifies against slander. In the first three verses, Job uh, responds to his friends with respect to his knowledge over against their knowledge. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard, and I understand it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Now, he's responding here in the context of slander. And I hope you understand that slander is going to be a very significant part of your experience as a Christian. You remember the Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter adds in 1 Peter 4.14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Speaking there of the reality of slander. Now, boys and girls, slander is when somebody tells a lie about you, makes up things about you. And we all experience that as children. We experience that particularly, though, as adults. That is what's been happening to Job through all of these accusations thrown at him by his friends on the basis of what they claim to be strong spiritual knowledge. You remember they, well, they had a vision. And it was true. And they had what they considered the record of the ancients uh, as it's been communicated to them. And uh, they were making their accusations against Job uh, on the basis of these things that they knew, assuming a superior position to Job. But in 1 and 2, Job says that his knowledge is different from theirs. And because it's different from theirs, it is, it's not just equal, it is superior. You see, they knew God abstractly. They knew about God. Job knew God. Look how he puts it. My eyes, behold, now he draws attention to what he's saying. Pay attention. Behold, my eye has seen. 
all this, all of these things that you've talked about. My ear has heard and understood it. He says, you've said nothing new. But notice Job had experienced these things. You see that? That's why he uses um, the senses here of, of the eye and the ear. So you all know the difference between knowing about someone who can read a book. So Pastor Groff started reading a biography about uh, R.L. Gerardo uh, uh, last night. And he knows about Gerardo. And a lot about Gerardo. It moved his heart to read about it. But he doesn't know Gerardo and he won't until he gets to heaven. There is a knowing about someone and knowing someone. As you know, your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, your your co-workers. And, and what Job is saying here is that you've got an abstract knowledge. Yes, you've spouted off a lot of true things about God, but you don't know God. He said, my knowledge is an experimental knowledge. It's a knowledge that communes with God, that listens to God and, and responds to God. And so he claims then of his knowledge in verse 2, what you know, I also know, I'm not inferior to you. He uses a figure of speech here, put it in the negative simply to emphasize by the figure the positive. When he says, I'm not inferior, he says, I'm equal to you. And in fact, my knowledge is superior to you because of its nature. Now, Job's not boasting here. He's simply doing what the Apostle Paul does, for example, um, when he has to uh, claim uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.5, over against the slanderers and the false apostles. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. What Paul does much later, Job does here, simply saying, I have a different kind of knowledge. And dear friends, it's a knowledge that I hope every one of you has. A knowledge that knows God that communes to God, listening to God speak to you through the reading and through the preaching of his word and responding to him in faith and love and, and meekness and, and readiness of mind. This experimental knowledge is essential then to a good conscience, you see, because they go hand in hand. If you know God in this way, then your conscience has received from God a certain boldness because you're living in his presence. And that enables then Job to say uh, in verse 3, I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue with God. He's basically saying, I'm finished with you guys. Now, obviously he's not. Right now he wishes he was. He says, I'm finished with you. I want to lay my case out. Uh, this word argue is to set my case out before God. I want to direct it to him as the Almighty. Shaddai. The all-sufficient one in whom is my trust, whom I know. Job says that um, that's where he's going to turn his attention. But with that bold assertion, he rebukes his friends now, not answering their slanders, but rebuking them for their slander based on their abstract knowledge. And he rebukes them for four things about their counsel. He says that they are useless counselors, they're ignorant counselors, they are culpable counselors, and they are vain counselors. Now in verse 4, he rebukes them and says, you are useless 
counselors. You, he said, I want to make my case to God in verse 3, but, contrast, you smear with lies your worthless physicians. Now, they've come as counselors. They've come as comforters. They've come as what later the Puritans would refer to as physicians of the soul. They've come as, as wise and godly men. They've, they've come alongside Job to speak to him. But in fact, he says, you, in fact, are useless as counselors because you are not proper physicians of the soul. And why are they worthless? Because they simply have forged lies against him. The language is very forceful. You have smeared me with lies. David uses this language in Psalm 119, verse 69. The arrogant have forged a lie. The same word, forged, smeared, a lie against me. He's saying, look, you have invented sins against me in order to demonstrate the system, your health, wealth, and prosperity theology. And you are lying about me. Thus, you are absolutely worthless to come alongside me. A second, he says, they're ignorant counselors in verses 5 and 6. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. Listen, please, please hear my argument and listen to the contentions of my lips. He said, you are spouting folly. If you'd shut up, people wouldn't know how foolish you are. In fact, you might even appear to be wise. Later, Solomon will repeat these, this concept in Proverbs 17 with respect to the fool. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. It's a good lesson to learn. If we keep our mouths shut a good bit more, then we won't be betraying our ignorance so much around others. But that's what Job is saying to them. He says, be quiet and then be teachable. Please hear my argument. Listen to the contentions of my life. They're not listening, you see. As I've already pointed out, we've got this dialogical format in Job. So you'll have speeches and, and responses. And this is the end of the first cycle of speeches and responses. And Job is trying to respond to what they're saying, and they are simply speaking past him. They're not listening. They're, as we see more fully in this third point here, they are blinded by their own uh, deceit and partiality. And Job is pleading, be quiet. Listen to what I have to say. You might learn something about God. But as it is, they were ignorant counselors. Now the most serious indictment that Job brings against them is verses 7 through 11. And that is that they are culpable counselors. And by the word culpable, I mean they are blameworthy. They're placing themselves in a very serious position with respect to God. He, um, he shows what they're doing wrong in verses 7 and 8. Notice how he uses a series of rhetorical questions. It's very useful because rhetorical questions go for the conscience. And so he's probing here. Will you speak... What is unjust for God? And speak what is deceitful for Him? Will you show partiality for Him? Will you contend for God? Now, here we're getting to the heart of their slander. What is it they're doing? Well, they have said, but 
that God is righteous and they want to protect the righteousness of God. And so since God is righteous, then anybody who suffers as Job is suffering must be wicked. That is their contention. That is their accusation. But you see, that's what Job is saying is that they, in fact, are speaking what is unjust about God. They've thrown God out of balance. They've lost the focus on the camera or the telescope. Um, In fact, they're speaking deceitfully about God because they're showing partiality. Now, how in the world do you show partiality for God? By throwing him out of balance. By being jealous for his integrity as as they understood it. So we must protect him. We know he's righteous. And so out of that partiality, that overbalanced um, commitment to some of the exercises of God's attribute, they're speaking out of a partiality for God. And thus, they are thinking they're contending for God. In fact, they are contending against God. You know, we can do this, and it's very important that we understand that we can do this. You can be so committed to certain truths about God that you forget others. That really is the history of all the oppositions to uh, our our doctrines of sovereign grace. Uh, Because people get gripped by this concept of, of free agency and what the Bible says about man's responsibility with respect to his will, they says, well, obviously, God cannot be sovereign in the way that you folks say sovereign. Well, of course, he elects, but he elects those whom he knows are going to exercise their will on behalf. And so they've spoken out of a partiality, so to speak. They're trying to defend something the Bible says, and they're speaking lies. But we can lose focus as well. We can get so... Uh, caught up with some aspects of God. Maybe it is his, his justice and his righteousness. Uh, and that we forget about his loving kindness and his tenderness and his, his long suffering. I remember uh, years ago when uh, Crew was then Campus Crusade, had their little evangelism track and that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, some people on the basis of Psalm 5 started saying, God hates you and has an awful plan for your life. That's true. But is that really the way to present the gospel? An overreaction to a wrong concept of God's love. And so be careful. You see, if you've, got this, if you've got this experimental knowledge of God, if you know Him and not just about Him, that will help you stay balanced in your own thoughts toward Him, your own worship, your own reflections, as well as how you speak of Him to others. So they were way off base, but what happened is they've exposed themselves now to the very calamity and punishment um, with which they were threatening Job. So look at the continued questions. Verse 9, will it be well when he examines you? Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? Now remember, Zophar has called God to come alongside and be the one that reproves Job. Help me, God. Assuming that he's right, and uh, God then is on his side. So Job now is probing. As he's exposed their slander, he says, Do you really think it's going to be well when he examines you? Can you deceive God? Boys and girls, you can maybe fool your parents, deceive them, but you can't deceive God. 
If you men are hiding uh, in dark places with a computer screen, are you women? Are gossiping on the phone? Are wasting time? You can't deceive God. You might deceive the rest of us. You might be sitting here this morning in the midst of God's people as a, as a hypocrite, living a double life. But understand the question. Will you deceive him as one deceives a man? Uh, what are you going to do when he examines you? He will surely reprove you. He's going to bring you to an accounting. And if you secretly show partiality, he's going to expose your motives. And then this final question in this series Will not his majesty or exaltation terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Do you, you believe that? Do you think of God's majesty and exaltation? Again, we speak glibly about God. We speak lightly about God. We don't speak with this reverence, with this awe of who he is. Yes, he's our father, but he's God. And with this question, Job is bringing this to our attention, that his majesty in one sense terrifies us if we realize it. There's a dread of him. We do not want to fall under his justice or his wrath. And that's why we want to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says to them that they are culpable counselors. They're in great danger of reaping the very things that they are saying that Job is reaping. You see that? So they're useless. They're ignorant. They're culpable. And then he says in the fourth place, they're vain counselors. Your memorable, verse 12, your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. The word memorable sayings is simply your memorials. Again, he probably has in mind these references to the past, oblique references to what the ancients have known and what the, the wise have known. But as they have put it together, he says they're no better than proverbs of ashes. Now, what happens to ashes in the wind? They blow away, just like dust. Ashes blow away. They have no lasting value. And he says, this is what all of your quoted Proverbs are. Because you don't really understand the glory and majesty of God. You do not understand of that about which you speak. Additionally, your defenses and defenses of clay are literally your breastworks. I know in the authorized version it says your bodies, and that is a derivation of this word. But the idea of breastwork, uh, defensive structures built, uh, fits the context better. Uh, their defenses for their system are built out of nothing but clay. Clay will crumble under the attack against it, and they will have nothing left. And so what Job has done here, as he has asserted his proper knowledge of God personally and experimentally, on the basis of a conscience that's testified to him then about what God has said about him, that he is blameless and upright, a God-fearer who turns away from evil. He's not. Whatever's going on, he doesn't know. But he does know that he's not being punished as a gross hypocrite. And they've slandered him to say so. And it was his good conscience that enabled him then to be fortified against their slanders. Again, Peter, in 1 Peter 3.16, keep a good conscience 
so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let them say what they may say. And you've experienced it. And you're going to experience it. But if you know that you're walking faithfully before the Lord, then you can, by keeping this good conscience, you can be confident then, as Peter says, then the very thing in which you're slandered, uh, they who revile you will eventually be put to shame. If not now, before God. But you can walk with integrity if you have a good conscience. You can withstand the attacks and the slanders the people who bring both against your doctrine and against your behavior. Now, in verse uh, 13, Job moves from uh, rebuking them, uh, fortifying himself with his good conscience, to with his good conscience boldly appealing to God. Now, he has said in verse 3, that's what he wants to do. I speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue with God. So he says in verse 13, be silent. I can picture, I think Eliphaz was about to speak. He had enough. <laughs> and Job says, be silent. I'm not finished. Be silent before me so that I may speak. I want to continue and then let come on me what may. So here he's saying is that be quiet. Now here's what I'm going to do. I am going to set my case before God. I am going to argue my case. He says that again in verse 15. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And that means to lay out the case. Now, Job is speaking well, a bit over the top here. He'll be rebuked for thinking he can go to God's presence and argue his case. But there is a great deal of truth in what he's saying. And that is, you have only one place to go. And that is to God. You can do it in prayer. You lay your case out to him and you can expect him to deal with you, to teach you what you need to know and to bring balance to your life. So he tells them, he says, look, but come on me what may. I'm done with you. I'm turning now my attention to God. Now, he's not doing this glibly. You notice he says in verse uh, 14, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? He says, I know what I'm doing. In fact, this is part of the good conscience. He said a, a hypocrite would never um, wager his life for coming and setting his case before God. He says, I am willing. I'm already dead. I'm willing to wager what's left of my life uh, to come into the presence of this holy God. Again, that's a good conscience that enables him to know. And then to confess what he confesses in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, one of the more memorable verses, and there are many of them in the book of Job. Though he slay me, I will, and it's better, I will wait on him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Now here's his faith. Here's his conscience. He knows that he's not being punished because of gross hypocrisy. So he's, he's willing to say, I'm going, I want to appear before God. I know he may slay me, but I'm going to come and wait on him. I'm going to come and wait on his answers to this dilemma. I'm going to come and see what he has to say 
But nevertheless, I'm still going to lay out my case before him. And then look at this confidence. This also, and it's really the personal pronoun. All the modern versions have this, but I like better. He also is my salvation. He also, he said, I can come. Because of my, I can come regardless of what's going to happen because I know that God is my salvation. And by that he means that God is going to be his vindicator and grant him eternal life. He, he's not looking for any kind of deliverance that his friends have vainly promised. He's not looking to get back his health, his, his wealth or whatever. No, he wants vindication. He wants to know why God is doing what he's doing. But he also wants this eternal salvation. Then he contrasts himself, you see, and the adversative here is, is really good with the Hebrew. Uh, nevertheless, uh, excuse me, a, a four, a godless man may not come before his praise. A hypocrite can't do this. I am willing to wager everything on the fact that whatever's going on, and I don't understand what's going on, I'm not being punished for sin. And he's saying, look at my eyes. This in itself is is a further demonstration that I'm not a hypocrite. What hypocrite could ever, ever say such a thing? And so he's confident that God will, in the end of the day, do for him what is right, although he doesn't understand. But he concludes then with this confidence in verses 17 through 19. Listen carefully to my speech. Let my declaration fill your ears. So now, pay attention. Listen, behold, this is the third time now in this very brief paragraph he has drawn attention to what he's saying. In verse 1, behold, my eye has seen it all. And then he will say later, behold, now um, I um, uh, want you to be uh, uh, silent. Or behold, now, the, no, in verse 15, behold, now, though he slay me. And now he... Verse 18, behold, now I've prepared my case. In other words, my conscience is clear. I know that I will be vindicated. He could only know that because of a conscience that bore witness that he was not a gross hypocrite. Who then will contend with me? He said, if God vindicates him, he'll ready to die. I'll be silent and die. He can die because his conscience has been vindicated. You see here the importance of maintaining a good conscience. The blessing of a good conscience. John speaks to us about this in 1 John 3. We will know by this that we are the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whenever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Sometimes the heart might be wrong. We appeal to God. But the important thing is maintain your heart and your heart will not condemn you. And you will have confidence before God. It's a glorious reality. And what is yours in Christ Jesus. It's why in our corporate worship, every Lord's Day morning, we have not just a confession of sin corporately, but we have the declaration of the assurance of pardon with that added promise from God. 
so that as you've confessed your sin, my friend, you know, you know that your sins have been pardoned you. You know that you are accepted with God. And thus you're able to live with a good conscience. Now there's some very useful things that we do in order to maintain a good conscience. The first we saw in our meditation and our New Testament reading, and that is from Hebrews chapter 10, you cling to Christ. You can't purify your conscience. Only through the perfect work of Christ does the Spirit of God cleanse your conscience. But as we have it in Hebrews 10, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We're not taking our lives in our hands, you understand, to enter the holy place. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have this great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The beginning of a good conscience is when the Spirit of Christ comes and applies the blood of Christ, that glorious sacrifice to cleanse your conscience from the defilement and guilt of sin on the basis of his perfect sacrifice, satisfying the justice of God. You cling to Christ. But notice you use the sacraments. The end of that verse, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. This is a reference to baptism. I want you to see this relationship that as uh, your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Your baptism then, the Spirit speaks to you through that washing of water, even though it happened uh, many cases years ago, and, and none of you children remember it. But you've been washed with the water of baptism to signify to you that your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You use your baptism then to maintain a good conscience. Now this morning we come to the Lord's table. And it's the same thing, because here at the Lord's table, not only do we think objectively about Christ's blood shed for us, but we think subjectively it's been shed for me. Christ's blood's been shed for me. Christ speaks to me now of the assurance of my pardon, and I belong to him. That promotes a good conscience. So cling to Christ. Use the sacraments. Third, commune with God. As Job says he did, you do so as well. Know him, not just about him. Come into his presence with joy, but also with fear and trembling. Understand his excellence and his majesty, but speak to him uh, the words of Scripture. Let him speak back to you from Scripture and grow in that personal knowledge of him. Fourth, um, let your conscience be instructed by the word of God. Our conscience is going to be wrong. You can have a wrong conscience. Um, and that's why, uh, because of the, the remnant of sin within us, God's given us again His law. And the purpose of that law is so that we can train our consciences so that when they do speak, they speak with God and for God. Five, be careful to order your life by the Word of God. Be committed daily to walking by His commandments, regardless of what others say about you. And six, keep short accounts. As you confess your sins, you know that God forgives you and cleanses you. He cleanses your conscience. And so be ready to confess your sin to God and to one another. And it's in the very confession of sin 
that you will maintain a good conscience. Let us pray. Our Father, we bless your name as we are here this morning in your presence, not out of some uh, terrible uh, dread, um, not taking our lives in our hands, Lord, as we have gathered, but coming boldly in Christ Jesus, coming to where only the high priest could go once a year, and yet we come regularly in our daily walk with you and in corporate worship. We come, Lord, boldly because our high priest is seated in the heavenlies and bids us come. We come with a good conscience that's provided by your spirit to us. And Lord, we bless your name. And now as we would uh, uh, prepare to come to uh, the table, we ask that your spirit would further prepare us for coming to the table and you would continue to preach your word to us through these sensible signs. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.